Um, it was about 10 years ago, we moved to Austin. And uh, when we moved, we put both of our cars up for sale. And of course, the better ones sold. So it was a nice family car, Tahoe, lots of room for everyone. And uh, what we ended up having was this two-door car with way too many miles. And it was just jam-packed. Um, and it was functionally fine unless you wanted to go to Home Depot or go to Costco. And then it was just, uh, you had four and six-year-old kids and it just became an adventure in packing. But the greater challenge was for a year and a half, this was our only car when we moved to Austin. And so I don't think there was a better, um, more intentional communication season in my marriage than when we only had one car. Because for all of our adult lives, we had had our own vehicles, and you never needed to share. <laughs> uh, thankfully, I lived close to uh, where I was working, and so I could walk, I could get dropped off, but every night would be a conversation about what we were doing tomorrow. Um, who needed, where, like what errands needed to be run, or what meetings were happening, and who could get a ride, or um, what it essentially does. Now, if you would have asked me, um, can you get by with one car? Absolutely not, except that we effectively created a new normal. In fact, the reason we ended up getting a second car was because we were needing to be able to load more things in our car. It was just, and the kids were getting bigger and we needed more space. Uh, my point in that is that new normals sometimes happen because, well, they, they're thrust upon us. Other time, new normals are something we choose. But my contention is, for our hearts to be made new, for our hearts to be resensitized, we have to go through a new normal of some sort. Now, most of the time, we experience them reactionary. Most of the time, we get a reactionary because we get a bill of health that says something's wrong, and we recalibrate the way we eat, or we recalibrate the way we exercise. Other times we get a new normal because a tragedy or a crisis happens and it's just a wake-up call for life. And then there are other times where we choose to want to go down a new path. Somehow we find the motivation, maybe because we discover faith in Christ and we once were lost, but now we're found. Once we we're walking in darkness, but now we have this new lease or purpose in life. My point is, I think a new normal is necessary for new life. And so how do we, as people of faith, live into the promise of the resurrection? I got to say, I'm so excited about tonight um, and some of the things that we're going to uh, kind of do and follow up with where we started a couple of weeks ago. Um, just to let you know what we did, um, I was wrestling with a statistic, and I shared it earlier, and the statistic was 40% of the world lives on $2 or less a day. That's like 2.5-ish billion people are living on $2 or less a day. And I don't know how, how world crisis affects you. I get overwhelmed because I don't feel like I can solve issues. So it almost has a numbing effect. So it's like, what can I do? Except that I want my heart to be resensitized. I want my heart to not be calloused up. And so as I was thinking about this, I thought, and we had done this earlier, several years earlier as a family, is if, if the rest of the world lives on $2 uh, or less a day, what could we do as a family to live on $2 dinners? And so that's what we did. Um, so there was four of us, so kind of $8 meals. We don't live extravagantly anyway. I mean, I drink 
ice water for most every dinner. And, you know, uh, we, we are not gourmets, uh, but uh, we're, we're functional cookers. Uh, and we, we manage, we get by. But you still have to be mildly intentional when you want to eat for $2 a person. You can't eat out. You can't do the convenient thing. You can't just necessarily, you kind of have to plan your menu. Well, on Monday, two weeks ago, I was like, all right, I'm going to do this. And I, and I, and I head to HEB, and I was so calculated. I love Julio's salsa. It's wonderful, kind of life-changing. But it's fresh salsa, so it's like 387 for, a, you know, a little thing. And I'm like, yeah, I, uh, it's not in the budget. So I, I kind of venture out into other places, and, and I get the HEB store-bought, you know, you know, most spicy one. We have this great rice and beans recipe. Uh, and so we had a little bit of rice because rice and beans is the, you know, meal of the developing nation. So I'm going to identify, walk in solidarity with the poor, right? Uh, and uh, yeah, like I'm some noble thing. I mean, anyway, what I was most proud about is I got like store-bought cream of corn and I, I was like, oh no, we're going generic label here and um, got the black beans and and um, I walked out of there uh, with, with my receipt, and uh, I, I, we kept our receipts from our shopping. And the best part about Monday's dinner, it was three eighty-eight uh, <clears throat> for the four of us, and, and there was leftovers, so that became a second meal. Oh, yeah, bring it. <laughs> Throw down the challenge. So it was really fun, mildly, you know, kind of boring menu week, but we just wanted to see, I can't solve world hunger. But I can begin to walk and, I, and identify with those who are hungry. Because I think God has created us in a way to not just go, oh, poor them. But maybe their problem becomes our problem. Maybe there's something that I can learn. And if I'm not careful, I just sort of insulate my heart and let it get calloused up over and over again to the point where I get desensitized. And so we took the week to kind of create a new normal in our dinner plan. And... Uh, and so after saving, doing these dinners and re repeating and, and not eating at Pint House this week, which is kind of in our rotation, we, we were able to save together $94. And so we wrote a check and kind of it was like, well, this is money that would have been spent. In other words, so let's see what we can do. And what was fun was to hear story after story of people doing similar things over the last week. Two weeks ago, I started with this series or, or with the idea of fasting. Because everyone fasts, probably not how we're used to thinking about it. Um, if you think in biblical terms, everyone's like, oh gosh, that's like for the spiritual green berets. Don't ask me to fast because that gives me cranky headaches and, you know, my stomach starts to bark and things like that. It's not pretty. I'm not nice. Except that most of us go through our normal pattern of living with reduced sleep, skipping workouts, putting friendships on hold. Sometimes we go through times of, oh, that golf game really is renewing and life-giving, but it just gets shelved. Sometimes we forfeit better nutrition. There are things we fast constantly, except we do it maybe for our own either laziness or lack of discipline or maybe for career ambition or family demands. Whatever the case is, we fast constantly. Biblical fasting is simply taking an otherwise normal voluntary uh, a normal activity, and choosing to commit a voluntary denial for biblical purposes. And so um, we together decided to say, what are things that we could fast from in our spending habits, whether it be Starbucks or the car wash or whatever. And so it was fun to hear some of those stories. 
um, so that we can pool some of our money together and see what God wants to do. Because we are a church that is committed to a practice, not just a meeting, although it's good to come together and worship. We want to have a living faith. And so one of two of our rhythms are compassion and generosity. So what would happen if people started to think that there's actually some needs and there's some opportunities, but there's also some resources that I can be part of a solution? Not solve anything, but be part, in small part, of God's response. And in the process, have our own hearts reconditioned or resensitized. And so... Um, what I want to do is look at a couple of passages tonight. And if you have your Bibles, um, turn with me to um, Genesis chapter 2. Because once you start in Genesis 1 and 2, you have the creation story. So it's like, whoa, Dave's digging deep. He's going from the beginning. Because I want us to understand, just on a simple level, God's original intent. You understand that the world we're experiencing, injustice, abuse, natural disasters, crisis, um, disease, is not actually the world that God intended. So it's fun to go before Genesis 3 where sin interrupts everything and changes the whole trajectory and see what is it the world that God actually designed. And so God starts creating this beautiful garden experience, this ideal garden considered paradise. And there was no shame, there was no fear, there was no regret. And God puts Adam there and he creates all these trees and he creates all of this produce and he creates all of this soil and God places them there. And if you read in Acts, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we we read these words, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. Why is that significant for our lives today? Except that we begin to understand central to our understanding of what it means to be people of God is that we are involved with the care and in some cases the restoration of God's creation. You understand what God said at the end of the creation was that it is good. He never revoked the goodness. It just got broken. So what God's been doing ever since Genesis chapter 3 is trying to repair and restore that which has been broken. And we have been called to be stewards. We have been called to be ambassadors, co-creators, co-conspirators in restoring his creation. That's both exciting and super daunting at the same time. But what if what if Adam was to give this reply, you know, God, I'm kind of an inorsy guy. I'm not super outdoorsy. I don't like getting dirty or messy. No, there's a stewardship involved. There's a responsibility. He says, I've entrusted you with this. Take care of it. So one of the things that I wanted to come from our faith experiment called the new normal is that we would have a new lens in which we would be able to see needs, opportunities, and our own resources to simply be part, in small part, of God's solution. So central to, God, to our understanding of what it means to be people of faith is that we would be co-creators or participants in God's care and restoration of his creation. Here's the thing. I was preparing for this message this week, and I realized compassion is a really hard thing to talk about. <clears throat> it's kind of like talking about faith or prayer. These things are meant to be experienced, not taught. These are hard things to talk about because it ends up feeling like, well, you're not doing enough. 
or God expects more from you. And I didn't want it to feel this way at all. But there's this picture of compassion that the way we learn it is either because we're on the receiving end of it or we get to be on the giving end of it. But God's called us into this level of care that we get to express and receive. And the only way we really learn compassion is when we experience it, when we participate with it. And so I was kind of struggling through, how do I talk about compassion in this series, except that we invite people to identify with what are the resources in their lives and what are the needs of Mount Nun, and then to become a little bit more aware of what God has surrounded them with. So can I share one story that's already come out? On um, probably Thursday this week, I get a, uh, an email from Sherilyn. Sherilyn is, um, and her husband live down on South West Parkway, and she has a friend who's involved in social work, and this friend is mentoring this teenage girl, and she emails me with this idea that she says, well, this girl is a teenager, and because of all the flooding, you know, we've had all these rains, they were displaced from their apartment, and um, they need to be able to stay in a hotel, and they don't actually have money to pay for it. Dave, would it be okay if I used some of the money from the new normal? Because I've been, I love this idea. I've been saving money and just kind of putting aside. I mean, do I, should I give it to you and then you give it? Should I? I was like, oh, good God, go and do. Go and spend to the glory of God. And, and what happened here was one person started realizing that they had a little nest egg and her, her lens, her eyes were open to needs opportunity, and her own resources. What do you call a minister except someone who begins to experience a new normal? Uh, I get to be a small, and she wants to make these contributions anonymous. She didn't have all the, the details worked out yet. She was trying to figure out how to be sort of subversive and not real known. I didn't want to make the girl or family feel like a charity, but I'm like, go and spend. I was like, by the way, how much did you save? She says, oh, well, I saved about $300. I'm like, good God, what did you eat all week? Or what did you do? You must have a serious Starbucks habit. Or, I mean, I don't know what she saved on, but she's like, I could do a lot with 300 bucks. Kind of fun, isn't it? When you realize God's sort of commissioning us into dime store philanthropy. We get to be low levels investors of the kingdom of God being there's a lot of hell on earth, and we get to, like, kind of write a check for heaven on earth. That just seems like the beginnings of new life, right? How do we live into the resurrection? Be part of God's solution in some small ways. Are we going to solve homelessness? Are we going to solve world hunger? Nope. Is your heart going to be resensitized? Hopefully so, so that our practice of faith isn't just showing up at church, but our practice of faith becomes a living faith, Right? And so um, I, I would say it this way, compassion isn't supposed to just simply be a series of service projects that we do outside of our normal activity, like it interrupts life because we go and do this service project, although that's a part of it. But I think from the beginning, God wanted care and compassion and acts of generosity to be woven through because the people of God have a lens in which to see the needs, the opportunities, and the resources a part of their daily life. So whether you're at work or whether you're in your commute, whether you're home with the kids on a rainy day and they're going through cabin fever, there's an opportunity to be light. 
And Jesus, or excuse me, God intended this from the beginning when he gave us his law. Now, don't be thrown by the law, but this is the second time that I'm going to use the same passage, and I think we've only met for six or seven Sundays now. But I want you to come back to what God's intention was for the people of God to respond in kind. Because he understood that we're living in a world that he didn't actually intend. We're living in a broken humanity. And so he begins to organize a priority. And listen to what he says in some verses out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24 reads, um, reads this way. The Old Testament law is all about daily living. It's about knowing what to do with generosity. It's knowing how treating coworkers and, and subordinates. It's knowing how to um, steward our influence and whatnot. And so there's, there's these really interesting passages. And in, in beginning in Deuteronomy chapter, uh, uh, let's see, Deuteronomy 24, beginning in verse 10. And when you make a loan, has anyone made a loan? Is anyone cashing in on a loan? Is anyone... Um, if you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into his house and get from uh, his, what is his, he is offering as a pledge. Stay outside and let the man to whom you are making the loan um, bring the pledge out to you. If the man is poor, don't, do not go to sleep with his pledge in your possession. In other words, he would pledge a cloak, which would also operate as sort of his warmth in a desert region. We don't mind those joyful noises at all. So if Dash is having a moment, I can relate. Here's the thing, though. Uh, this is so everyday and ordinary, and people, it's very easy to miss this stuff, but God's saying this is how to steward the opportunities and the influence that, and the relationships that we have. If the man is poor, don't go in to sleep, go to, go to sleep with his pledges in your position, even though you have a legal right to it. Return his cloak to him by sunset so that he may sleep in it. Then he will thank you, and it will be regarded as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord your God. You want to have a witness? You want to have a testimony? You don't have to memorize four spiritual laws. You just have to act with generosity. What? You mean I don't have to have four propositional truths to convince people that Jesus is the only way? Or do I just have to treat my employees, those indebted to me, with kindness and generosity? Yep. That was what God was saying in daily living. Um, he says, don't take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because he's subsistence living. Pay him his wages before sunset because he is poor and is counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. What we see again and again from these passages is that the book of Deuteronomy is trying to speak to two things. The name Deuteronomy actually means the, the second law. Now, why is it called the second law? The second law isn't because something new or different came out, like, oh, we got the revised vision, revision of God's word. What it is is a reminder of what God had called the people of God to live into. So what you have is God established the law. Here's a way to live in harmony with each other and harmony with God and harmony with our environment. He's trying to reestablish shalom and what was intended in the garden. But it gets interrupted by our sin. Now they've come out of slavery. 
They've been oppressed for 400 years, but they wandered for 40 years in the desert. Now they're settling into the promised land, and he gives them the reminder, the second law. Basically, hey, remember, don't forget, this is the way you're supposed to live in harmony with me and each other. Oh, and by the way, don't forget your, to teach your kids how to live. It wasn't send them to Sunday school. It was, here's the way to live. Live with generosity. Live with compassion. Live with a kind of kindness. What? He gave us a provision. For, he's not telling us, here's right doctrine. Here's the right belief. Here's a way to practice faith that will be a blessing and a testimony of who I am to the world around you. So there's this powerful statement coming to us. So um, the role, I believe, of compassion is that we would keep our hearts sensitive, not just to the needs, but to God. And this is how we begin to experience new life. My hope was that we would go through a week of fasting or saving certain spending, um, and it would look different the, the, the further we go, and we would just be reminded in, in maybe a more pleasant way. Um, I want to share with you a story I came across, and uh, I thought it was so compelling because um, there is something that's supposed to not just be a service project. There's supposed to be a way that we live. And throughout Scripture, we always see who does God respond to most? You know, it seems like there, God is sometimes more responsive than other times, and I will simply say this. God responds to the, to the cries of the people to the most vulnerable, to the most oppressed, to those whose needs are great. It says that when the people of God were in slavery and God heard the cries of the oppressed. And, and so when I read this, this guy who's a writer, but he blogs on the side, he writes books, it was such a compelling story. And in 2006, he went to Russia, uh, to, uh, in Kazakhstan, and he was going to adopt a 16-month-old baby boy. But you, I don't know if you're familiar with this process. It's quite extensive, and it's not efficient, and it takes forever. You have to really be called to do it. But it's one of the great callings of life for people who feel this is what God wants us to do. And so he and his wife were really committed to it. And he starts to describe the, the picture of this orphanage. It's exactly, it's this old Soviet compound, you know, with crumbling rock walls. And it's really sterile with no warmth to it, whether it be the, cl the, the climate uh, <clears throat> Or, or, or the sort of personality. It's very institutional. But almost every day as the time approached for them to take their son, they would show up. And they would show up with a diaper. And the people would take the diaper, go back and find their soon-to-be son, and change the diaper, because they're not a well-resourced operation, and they would bring him out and they would get to kind of hold and play with him. And here. But inevitably, they would bring him out with something really weird and something really different. It would be like pink tights with flowers. And it's not that they didn't care or didn't do their work with some kind of sincerity. It's that they had very little resources. And what he wrote about was one day we showed up and no one greeted us. So we're kind of standing around going, well, it's not our first rodeo. We know the way. And they made their way back to this room. And he says when he walked in, there was like 20 cribs in this room. And that wasn't the weird thing. Um, but it was, it, it was that it was quiet and he says the, the resources were so limited, it was really like a 30 to 1 ratio of newborns to workers, infants to workers. And so when they walk into this room, there were no sounds of children. And so the guy takes a walk around to look in each of the filled cribs, and only a handful, a couple, are actually sleeping. 
It's like, why aren't there any tears? Why aren't there any crying going on? Surely there's kids that are hungry. Surely there's kids that need to be changed. Surely there's kids that just want to be held. Surely there's an upset tummy in the mix. But there were no cries in the room. And so I was reading this. I was like, okay, this is really good. So let me just share. He says, these children had cried once. It's instinctual. We all cry. But a child cries to tell the adults they have needs. What I had to remind us when our kids were really long, they don't have words. So a cry is trying to communicate something. But if they, if the child cries over and over and these needs aren't met, if no one comes, they soon learn that crying is pointless. This was the entire room of children who had simply shut down. And at that point, if they asked me to adopt all of them, I would have taken them. Crying is the sound of life. How illustrative is. Thank you, Dash, for being here and reminding us of what life is. The child is saying, I believe that someone will meet my needs. Someone will come. Someone loves me. So what happens when a room full of children quit crying? It's a scary thought. But it's, he wrote, it was a beautiful sound the first time our son cried because we knew something had changed. My language, he had a new normal. He realized that we would respond to his cries. See, the next time that you're somewhere that a child cries that shouldn't be heard, whether it be in church or in a restaurant or at a theater, remember this. It's the purest call for love that there is. Don't hate the interrupting noise. Rejoice that the cry you hear will always be answered. Do we not want to be in a relationship with a living God because he hears our cries? And get this, sometimes we get to be the response to God's answer in small and maybe insignificant ways, but we get to learn to hear the cries when we resensitize our own hearts and lives. Well, clearly, the people of God were wayward. And at the end of this passage, he says, remember that you yourselves were slaves once too. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Because he didn't want to forget. And so Deuteronomy teaches us, it reminds us of two very foundational questions. If you're taking notes, it's on your outline tonight. And it says, how has God led us? And, and Moses goes through this great history lesson of the faithfulness of God. But he starts to end with a second question. Where does God want to take us. If I was to give you a devotional path this week is to wrestle with two questions. Next week, we're not going to be in tribes because we're going to be having a party of Cinco de Bayou, but you might want to consider how has God led us to consider the faithfulness of God in your past, but to consider where does God want to lead us? That's what Deuteronomy is all about. And so what's hard is you see the people of God eventually go and become slave owners. What? You guys, you guys used to be slaves. You know how bad. And now you become slave owners? Don't forget that you once were slaves. Don't forget you used to be oppressed. And so God kept delivering them out of oppressive rule, whether it be Egypt or Babylonia or Assyria or Rome. God kept delivering him because he heard the cries of the vulnerable and the oppressed and those in need. So the people of God never had a consistent path. But what we see out of Acts chapter 2 
in the early church, in the immediate post-Jesus era, and I'll just close with this verse, where he begins to say, um, he begins to see a new normal. And, and in Acts uh, 40, in Acts 2, 44 through 46, the people began to gather. And tell me if this sounds like a little bit of what we're going for. Tell me if this starts to feel like a tribe-like experience here at Mission Hills Church. I hope it does. But he starts by saying these words. Well, first, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the, money, at the many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. I'd like to think they created their own new normal initiative, some faith experiment to see if God actually was going to produce. All the believers were together and had everything in common. This is the one time in the history of the people of God that we catch a glimpse of they got it right. This is what God intended. This is what God was trying to make a witness and a testimony to the world. And it says that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily. But in verse 45... He says, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Something got interrupted, and they said, wow, I get to be a part of meeting needs. Yeah, if you need me to sell something, if you need me to save a little money, yeah, if you need me to contribute a little something, I just want to be a part of God's restoration. And, and the, the reason I think that becomes more and more significant for us is because sometimes when we're talking about compassion, we get to be on the giving end. But it's only a matter of time before we will end up on the receiving end. And in either case, we get to have our hearts resensitized. We get to push a reset button and recalibrate on what it is to meet a need. Because really, when we come and we show up somewhere, we're meeting a need that's actually our own, is that I need to be around people who their needs aren't my needs, and I, I need a new perspective on life. So I would simply say Jesus is not seeking some distant acts of charity. Um, he seeks concrete acts of love. You fed me. You clothed me. You put me up for a night. You stood by my side. You called on me. You stopped for me. You made eye contact with me. So here's what we want to do tonight. We have a stack of gift cards from HEB and Walmart. And I don't care if you contributed to or not. I don't want you to leave without. If you're a teenager tonight, if you're an adult tonight, please, this is a way for you to practice faith. Tell your kids what you have. Tell your kids we're going to pray each night about looking for opportunities and looking for needs. I want everyone to walk away with at least one card, but I think we might have room for two. And we might have money. How much do we have tonight, Theo? Do we have to? So right now, we have about $500 in gift cards. So what we want to do is just send people home with gift cards tonight so that we can be able to practice in just ordinary, normal ways. I just want you to be able to walk for the next month with something in your pocket or purse that if a moment comes up where you can meet a need, if you can hear a story, if you can learn a name, or if you can provide for something, you begin to offer it. 
so that your kids might see their uh, faith lived out and that your heart might be resensitized to the needs, to the opportunity, and the resources that are all around us. There's a lot of ways that you might participate to give. One of the things that I was saying to Sherilyn um, was when she was had her $300, um, and I was like, what, you, you know, what should I do? And I was like, well, go Go put lodging. Go, go put food on their table. Go pay for stuff if you can. Um, oh, and by the way, know that there's this other resource called Tribe, like a Minutemen Army that you can call on. See, what I want is your tribe to be an extended family, but I want your tribe to be a resource community that when someone needs to be moved or someone needs help, that you can call on a group of friends that might be stranger to the person in need, but you're like, no, I know them and I told Sherilyn, I was like, hey, I think there's a tribe behind you that might want to get involved with this family too. So if you're part of the West South tribe, be ready because your gift cards might go to good use and you might get involved with this. But let's, let's just close in a word of prayer as we just respond in praise. Um, God, I pray that you would enliven our minds and our hearts, that you would give us a glimpse and a vision of that which you put in front of us. Lord, help us in these next weeks to be aware of the needs, the opportunities, um, and the resources that are in our lives. And make these gift cards just a, a reminder of how you want to use us to bless, but you want to resensitize and restore our own hearts. So may we find joy in giving. May we find um, great satisfaction in, 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 in being your, your hands and your feet and your eyes and your ears and your words to people in need of encouragement. We give you our lives and want to have and seek you for a living faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and sing? We've got a great song called I Stand. So that's just, you can't sit and sing out. And so let's just sing these words together as we close our time.